Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Easter According to the Gospel of John. So turning your Bibles to John 19, verses 23 to 27, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Ministry Lessons from the Cross. seems difficult to understand how it could be that our Lord and Savior went to the cross in submission to his Father and also, while he was doing that, was showing compassion to those who were close to him. See, I don't know about you, but when I'm sick or when somebody has hurt me deeply, I I find it difficult to, to concentrate on the needs of others. I become consumed with my own pain. I've not liked that about myself. I know that God's not pleased with me when I'm consumed with myself, but at times, I say this to my own shame, but in times of my own personal misery, I find myself consumed with myself. It's called being self-absorbed. It's when we're self-absorbed that we're preoccupied with self. And frequently we hear of self-absorbed people, they simply drive others away. I mean, look at me, they say, I'm suffering. My suffering, it's worse than your suffering. My sufferings demand your full attention. See, often self-absorbed people can't empathize with others. They pay little attention to what's going on around them and a great deal of attention to what's happening to them. Now, as a general character trait, self-absorption is negative. But who would ever accuse someone of being self-absorbed when they're suffering terribly or when they're being bitterly attacked or when they're the subject of the unjust hatred of others? See, at times like this, the nature of being human is that we look to protect ourselves because we've got little energy for anything else. Even the most compassionate person in severe distress forgets about others, at least for a time. And sometimes, almost inexplicably, I find people who are going through extreme pain and loss and at the same time are busying themselves with serving others. My first introduction to that was while I was still a very young pastor. I was visiting a dear saint who was in the hospital dying of very painful bone cancer. Since I was still a fairly inexperienced pastor, I was uncertain of how to care for her. I prepared myself with helpful scripture that might comfort her. I was ready to pray with her. I I made certain that I'd be attentive to anything that she might want to share with me. I thought I was ready, but I wasn't. What happened in her hospital room has deeply changed me ever since. See, I came to her room and she expressed delight in seeing me. And then to my everlasting shock, before I could ask her how her pain was and what she was thinking about these days, she beat me to the punch. She told me that she'd been praying for me all that day, for my wife, for my kids. She wanted me to tell her everything that was going on in my life, for she believed that now that she was in the hospital, God had freed her from all of her other activities so that she might give herself to prayer. So tell me, she asked, how do I pray most effectively for you? I find almost nothing in the literature about that kind of a person. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who made famous the stages which a dying person goes through, never spoke about the dying who until the time of their death give little concern for themselves but continue to be of use to the kingdom of God and to others up to the very moment that Christ calls them home. And so today as we continue in John's account of the passion of our Lord, we come to see where Jesus is crucified. John gives us a picture of Jesus on the cross, and to our surprise, we see him concerned that he carry out the will of his father and also to care for his mother. 
You know, if you don't pay close attention to that, you're going to miss part of the wonder of the cross. So let's begin by reading our text. And as we do, let's just read the first few words of John 19:23 because it simply starts, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus. And as we've seen before, John gives little information about the actual crucifixion itself. You know, Luke tells us that when they were crucifying him, he had prayed that those who were ignorant of what they were doing would be forgiven. It was, you know, his act of compassion for the soldiers who were carrying out their orders. And as to actual brutality of the crucifixion, John is completely silent. Jesus is crucified, he says, between two others. And apart from that, the actual nailing of his hands and feet, as well as how he was arranged on the cross, John says nothing. It's as if John now wants us to take our eyes off of the actual sufferings of Jesus and put our eyes on the ministry of Jesus, the ministry that he gave from the cross. Again, for those of us who are unaccustomed to such a viewpoint and who are more accustomed to, you know, railing at injustice and the cruelty of the powerful, you know, this viewpoint of John, it can leave some of us confused. I mean, how can we be talking about the ministry of Jesus while the real criminals are the ones who nailed Jesus to the cross. I mean, shouldn't we be focusing on their evil and not on what Jesus is now up to? And yet, John wants us to take our eyes from the suffering, if but for a moment, so that we might see what Jesus is up to. So let's read the entire text, John 19, 23 to 27. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. See, this text contains two elements of what Jesus did on the cross. He fulfilled scripture and he cared for the well-being of his mother. So let's consider each one of these two themes. And after we've done that, let's examine what God has to say to us. So we start with the soldiers. They've stripped him naked and they've hung him on a tree and they're now dividing up his clothing. There's nothing in this scene that an ancient would have found surprising. It was considered the the right of crucifying soldiers that they should have the belongings of the one whom they have executed. John says they divided what little there was into four parts and by that, we have to assume that there were four soldiers that had nailed Jesus to the cross. Jesus wore the clothing of any first century Jew. He would have had an outer garment, a belt, head covering, and sandals. And that has to refer to the four items that they divided among themselves. But then came his undergarment, which John said consisted of but one piece. There was no seam in it. The soldiers decided that it would be much better to gamble as to who got it rather than to destroy it by cutting into four. You know, at the outset, this seems to be just one little incident in the crucifixion of Jesus. It's as if John is saying, look, what happened to Jesus is what happened to everyone else who was crucified. Not only were they nailed to a cross, but they would have to watch as they are now bereft of every earthly thing that they possess. And so in the shadow of the suffering of Jesus, we see soldiers 
casting lots or, you know, to give an image that we might understand today, you know, drawing straws or flipping a coin or whatever they do to see who gets the last piece of clothing that Jesus had. But John isn't including this to show us, you know, just how they are degrading Jesus. John says, did you know that this common act fulfills scripture? You know, John wants us here to see how carefully Jesus is fulfilling everything that the Father gave him to do. You know, the scripture John has in mind is Psalm 22, verse 18. You know, Psalm 22, that's a psalm of David. And you might well remember the very first verse of that psalm because Jesus actually quoted that verse while he was on the cross. See, Psalm 22 begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, on the one hand, this psalm is about the sufferings of David. So it's a psalm of lament where, you know, where David's sufferings come about because, you know, his enemies who want to destroy him. These enemies have no morals. They're going to do whatever they can to destroy the king of Israel. But Christians have long seen that that psalm is a picture not just of the sufferings of David, but rather this psalm finds its fulfillment in the sufferings of Jesus. And that's because David was the forerunner of the Messiah. And God had promised that the Messiah would come from David's line, sit on his throne, and the Messiah would fulfill everything that David had hoped for. And as David suffered, so also the Messiah would suffer, only that the Messiah's sufferings would be more intense than anything that David underwent. And that's why, for instance, in verse 7 and 8, it says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. See, that literally is what happened to Jesus on the cross. What David speaks about does look forward beyond his own sufferings to the greater sufferings of his greater son. Consider the two verses just before the one John quotes, Psalm 22, 16 and 17. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Yeah, that's the picture of the Messiah on the cross. And John could have quoted all of those verses, but he chooses only verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You know, some have concluded there are over 300 distinct Old Testament prophecies that Christ fulfilled. Why, of all things, does John quote this one right here? This month on Back of the Bible Canada, we express gratitude to our monthly partners and earnestly celebrate all those who privilege this ministry with their gracious support every month. Your consistent gift ensures Bible teaching and engagement resources continue to be offered through a wide variety of mediums across Canada and around the globe. We invite you to join our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program. And in so doing, you'll not only help to sustain and grow this ministry, but in appreciation each year, you'll receive our annual scripture calendar, a copy of an annual CD series, and an exclusive 15% discount on all of our Bible teaching and engagement resources. For more information on becoming an 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner or to join, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. John portrays the soldiers as they're doing something that's shameful, yet their shameful designs are a part of God's eternal plans. 
I mean, little did the soldiers know that they were fulfilling prophecy in their act of grabbing a dead man's clothing. They were acting in such a way that all future generations would know that even the small details of the crucifixion were a part of God's greater designs. And that Jesus, while on the cross, was fulfilling the scripture down to the smallest details. And that's what John wants us to see. Nothing on the cross was left to chance. And the story of Jesus is not the story of a good man set upon by evil men, a story that comes to a sad and bitter ending. Rather, the story of Jesus is the story of God deliberately fulfilling his plans. Just look at Jesus, says John. Even while he's on the cross, he was carefully fulfilling every role the Father had given him to do. Now, like our story of how difficult it is for anyone who's suffering to think of anything other than his or her own sufferings, Jesus does the opposite. And we are at this moment reminded of Jesus' own words in his high priestly prayer. John 17, verse 4, has Jesus praying, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And that's Jesus' mindset on the cross. There on the cross, he does the work the Father called him to do. He did that work by submitting to the crucifixion of those soldiers. As we know, at any moment, he could have exercised his power and prevented his own crucifixion, but he doesn't. He knows that after he's crucified, that it is the custom of the Romans to divide his garments. And he also knows that in them doing that, Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures. You see, Jesus is consciously, in small moments, acting for the interests of the glory of the Father, proving the scripture to be true, and proving that the things he is doing is necessary. So very well, let's move to the second thing that John shows us. And here for the first time, we notice that although Peter and the other disciples have fled in fear, John is left standing beside the cross. He's the youngest of the band. And if I've been right, that it was John and Peter who were in the courtyard of the high priest when Peter betrayed Jesus, well, we get a very interesting picture of John. When Peter betrays Jesus, yet John does not. Now, this no doubt might have been to some extent that, you know, John's known by the office staff of the high priest, and in one sense, he might have thought he was safe. But now everyone else has fled, and John's still hanging around. He's standing at the foot of the cross. And there are others there as well. I mean, most notably, there are four women. And as a side note, I find it interesting that three of the women are named Mary. I mean, Mary's a very common name for Jewish women. And so who are these four women? Well, the first is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we've got to stop here and just imagine that. Years earlier, when Jesus had just been born, Mary and Joseph appear in the temple to present Jesus according to the law of Moses. And Luke tells us that on that occasion, that there was a devout and righteous old man there whose name was Simeon. God had revealed to him that he would not die before his eyes had seen the Lord's Messiah. And you remember that Simeon had taken the baby Jesus into his arms and that he was prophesying over him. And then he directly turns to Mary, his mother. He tells her that this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel. And then he adds, and a sword will pierce through your own soul. See, I wonder if Mary thought about those words as she looked at her son on the cross, cruelly beaten and whipped, stripped naked and shamed, mockery of the religious leaders, Roman soldiers gambling for the little he had left, and she wept, not yet knowing what was to follow, but weeping, the sword Simeon spoke of years earlier was now piercing her soul. The next woman by her side, perhaps with her arms wrapped around her, is Mary's sister. 
According to Mark and Matthew, her name is Salome, and she's the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, the disciples of Jesus. And you might also remember that it was Salome at that time, inflated with, you know, how famous her sons were going to be, that, you know, had urged them to ask Jesus for seats of the greatest honor in his kingdom. Now she stands there stunned, seeing Jesus dying on the cross, trying to console Mary as much as she can at that point. The third is another Mary, and John simply calls her that she is the wife of a man named Clopas. And we know nothing about this woman outside of who her husband was. And finally, there's Mary Magdalene. According to Mark and Luke, Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. And Jesus also described her as the one who had sinned much, but also that she had loved much. And that is her love for Jesus as her Savior and her Messiah was undiminished. And hers is a wonderful story of redemption. You might also remember that as Jesus was in the house of a Pharisee, that it was this Mary who had washed his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, and that she had anointed his feet with the most expensive perfume she had. She loved much. And as I think about these four women, each one is there to let Jesus know that to the point of death, they will not abandon him. And theirs is the story of what it means to follow Jesus unto death. There's also is the story of women whose courage had brought them to that place where others were afraid to remain. And Jesus, although he is moved by these women who will not flee in the darkest hour, but he's also concerned about the days to come. He knows, even though he will rise again, that his time on earth will be short. Again, we need to step back and consider Jesus' concern for Mary. You know, widows had but one means of support, and that was their family. And, well, you might wonder here, well, what about Jesus' brothers? And Mark mentions he had four of them, and he names them. James, Joseph, Judas, also known as Jude, and Simon, four of them. So why isn't Jesus comforted by the fact that these four boys are going to do their duty for their mom? Well, John doesn't tell us, but we can imagine why. I mean, for one, John himself mentions back in John 7, verse 5, that his brothers did not believe in him. And it may be that their rejection of their own brother led to strains in the family. And as Mary, his own mother, did believe, Mary would have been at odds with her very own sons. That seems likely. Yeah, they might have cared for her, but they also would have been estranged from her, and it would have been very difficult. And in this knowledge, we have to imagine Jesus wrestling with his own mother's plight. And Jesus has in the past made it clear to his own mother that she would have to take her place alongside of the other followers of Jesus. She would have no exalted place. And so Jesus, remember, he's suffering terribly at this point, is concerned for his mother. And since John's standing there, he arranges matters while every breath is painful. His sockets are pulled out of joint. Every breath demands that he hoist himself forward on the cross as his lacerated back scrapes against that cruel wooden beam behind him. And yet in his agony, he assigns John the place of caring for his own mother. You know, according to church tradition, that's exactly what John did. And one tradition says that John actually owned a home in Jerusalem. And when the church began in Jerusalem, that's exactly where Mary lived for the next 11 years until she died there. Another tradition says that she followed John to Ephesus. John would eventually take leadership in the church there, and that's where Mary eventually died. Now, we can't say with certainty where Mary ended up, but one thing remains certain. John cared for Mary for the rest of her life. 
And how did all of that work together? I mean, given that, you know, John had all sorts of ministry demands on his life, I mean, somehow John pulled it all off. I mean, he knew that it was Jesus' will for his life that he care for Mary as his own mother. But we mustn't think that John was hard done by. Yes, he has to, you know, care for Mary for the rest of her life. But I think John was blessed by that. After all, according to the Gospels, Mary was the most blessed woman in history, and she remains the ideal for Christian womanhood. I have to believe that her care and love for John, along with the spiritual counsel that she would have provided for him, was a great asset to his ministry. And that brings us back to the theme of this passage, as well as the need to apply this passage to our lives. Jesus on the cross, fulfilling scripture and caring for those around him, that's the ideal of the Christian life. That is to say, when we suffer, we are to entrust ourselves to the will of the Father. Be concerned for only two things. One, that we might do that which pleases our Father, and two, that we might be concerned for doing that which meets the needs of others. In short, don't ever view your sufferings outside of the call of God which he has placed on your life. While we must all admit that suffering does cause us to look inward, let us embrace the model of the cross. Sufferings are a part of God's plan for our lives, and these same sufferings can't divorce us from the plan that God has for us. Let Jesus' ministry on the cross instruct all of us that whether it be life or death, whether it be suffering or being free from it, whether it be poverty or wealth, whether humiliated or well thought of by others, that nothing but nothing can prevent us from obeying God and serving others. That's what Jesus taught us on the cross. Thanks for your message, John. Now, here's a question that I actually haven't given much thought to, but maybe you can shed some light. There is Mary, Jesus sees her, and there he requests the disciple that the scripture says Jesus loved, John, to care for Mary. Why not one of Jesus' own brothers? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, obviously that would have been the natural response. Now, a great many people have said that, in fact, uh, John was related to Jesus, that he was the cousin, and there's a reason for holding that, and this might be part of the reason. But I think another part of the reason is that Jesus had an exalted role for Mary to play, and therefore putting her underneath one of the apostles would give her that role. I think that may be the case. Thanks, John. I appreciate that. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Easter, according to the Gospel of John, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The Bible speaks to the community of believers as the body of Christ. Christians are the hands and feet, voice, and heart of God. The Spirit who unites us works through us to do His will. The ministries of Back to the Bible Canada rely on these principles. As Dr. John reminds us, the most effective missions, the most effective outreach of the church is almost never accomplished alone. Partnership is always key. We're deeply appreciative for those who join us in mission through their prayers and financial gifts. Faithfully presenting the Word of God across Canada cannot be the effort of a single part. It requires a partnership with God's people. 
If you wish to support the mission of this ministry or become an 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.